Well, I invite you to please rise for the call to worship. The call to worship this morning is from Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, how good and gracious and wonderful you are. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit bringing us from death to life, giving us the gifts of repentance and faith. Oh, Father, we pray that you would enable us to give you all praise, glory, and honor now and forevermore. In Christ's glorious name. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I invite you to sing with me in the Trinity Psalter hymnal, number 438. I love to tell the story. Each time I tell it 
For our time of confession of sin and pronouncement of pardon for all those who have sincere repentance and true faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I'm going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, you are holy, 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 all sovereign all-knowing, all-powerful. You are high and lifted up. Everything that has been made, you have made it. You have spoke it into existence. Oh, Father, how amazing it is that you who are high and lifted up, that you dwell with those of a lowly, contrite heart. So Father, again, we want to take this time to come before you, to humble ourselves before you, acknowledging our complete and utter dependence on you. 
for justification, sanctification, glorification. So, Father, we want to take this time to confess to you those times of pride, those times of selfishness, those times where we look to do things according to our time and our ways rather than according to your purpose and will. So, Father, again, we want to humble ourselves before you and confess to you those sins of thought, word, and action over this last week. We confess these to you now in our hearts and in our minds. First Peter 5, starting at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Know this, that if you trust and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've been made alive through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, giving you the gifts of repentance and faith, if Jesus alone is your righteousness, know this, you have been forgiven. You have been pardoned. You have been justified. And you are a loved, adopted child of your heavenly Father. In Christ's glorious name, amen. For our time of confession of faith, we are looking at Article 3 of the second main point of doctrine within the Canons of Door, Christ's death and human redemption through it. So I invite you to read with me Article 3, the infinite value of Christ's death. You'll find this in your bulletins. Article 3, the infinite value of Christ's death. This death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you so love the world 
that you gave your only begotten son, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, to live a perfect and holy life, to be the sin bearer, to satisfy your holy just wrath on behalf of your elect, of every tribe, nation, language, and people. Oh, Father, what was impossible for us, you have made possible through the redeeming work of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would would help us to look to things above, not things below, that you'd fix our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our lives on your Son, Jesus Christ, at your right hand, interceding on behalf of the saints. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would continue to remove from us all idolatry, all rebellion. Oh, Father, we pray that you'd continue to loosen the grip of our hearts and our hands on the things of this world, for they all perish. Oh, Father, we thank you that though we are weak, you are strong, and that you always hold your children in the firm grip of your righteous right hand. So, Father, we pray that you would just help us, help us to have true assurance, true comfort, true rest, in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you'd continue to grow us. Help us, Lord, to live more and more according to the Spirit and less and less according to our old fallen flesh. Oh, Father, we thank you that our old self has been buried, crucified with Jesus Christ, and you have raised us to new life. Oh, Father, we do pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world. We pray for those who are facing tremendous persecution, opposition. Oh, Father, we pray for the church in Iran, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, North Korea, Northern Nigeria, Central Sudan. Oh, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that face torture, imprisonment, even martyrdom for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you'd be their strength. Help us, oh Lord, to pick up our cross and to follow. Father, we pray for Reverend Mahai, missionary we support in, in Bucharest. Father, we pray that you'd continue to to grow that church plant, seeking to shine the light of your son, Jesus Christ, in the midst of the darkness. Father, we pray for him and his wife and their son, for that congregation, Lord, you'd continue to grow them in your grace and in your truth. Oh, Father, we do pray for those who are in positions of power and authority over us. Father, we pray for our president, our governor, local county commissioners and leaders. Oh, Father, we pray that that you would give them wisdom and guidance. We pray, oh Lord, that you would open their eyes to see the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, 
the truth of your word. So, Father, we pray for them. Father, we pray for our church. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be of one heart and one mind, striving side by side for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, crucified. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Father, I pray for those who are in leadership here that you would help us to equip the saints for ministry, building each other up into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you'd grow us in our faith and that you would grow us in our love for one another. Help us, O Lord, to care for one another, to correct, rebuke, exhort with all patience and love one another in your word encouraging, spurring each other up into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we do lift up to you those who continue in a time of illness and or recovery. Father, we do continue to pray for Marcia, that you would continue to be her strength, that she she's at the memory care center on the ridge. Father, we pray that you would just help her that your word would continue to be living and active within her heart and mind. Father, we pray for her. Father, we do continue to pray for grace. As she grows physically weaker, we thank you, Lord, that you continue to strengthen her in her faith. What an amazing testimony of your grace, your mercy, and how you preserve your saints. Oh, Father, we thank you. We pray that you continue to strengthen and guide her in knowing your love for her as she is in this time of hospice care. Father, we do continue to pray for Wendy's sister-in-law, Dee Dee, as she continues in her cancer treatments. Father, we pray for her brother, Andy. Oh, Lord, that their eyes would be directed to your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your grace, mercy, and love. We continue to pray for Ruth, for ongoing healing and recovery from her surgery. And Father, we pray for all those who are facing a time of struggle or difficulty. Oh, Lord, that you would be their peace, their hope, and their strength. Oh, Father, we thank you. Father, we do continue to pray for Chuck and Lola. We pray for Athena. Oh, Lord, that you would just lead and guide Bring your wisdom, your peace, your love, and your truth into the situation. Father, we lift them up to you. Oh, Father, we thank you. And it is because of your grace and mercy, we say the prayer that our Savior tossed to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, the passage of Scripture we're looking at as we continue going through Isaiah is Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 6. So I invite you to please rise and read with me Isaiah 66, 1 through 6. Again, you'll find us in your bulletins so that you can follow along with us. 
Isaiah 66, starting at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, inerrant and infallible, all-sufficient and all-authoritative. Oh, Father, we are absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit for wisdom and discernment. We pray, O Lord, that you would lead us and guide us at this time, that we may know the truth, for to know the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, is to be set free. In Christ's glorious name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I'd like to invite, if there are any children who would like to come forward, if you want to come up to these front rows here for our time, our children's message. about being safe, being safe. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. When I was helping my grandmother in the kitchen, and when, say, this was the stove, and I was only this high, what do you think she told me? Never put your hand on the stove, yeah, on the top. Because why? What would happen? Ah, you could burn your hand. 
What's another lesson my grandmother told me? If you're cooking something, always have the handle turned in so that you didn't spill it on yourself, that boiling water. So there's all these kind of rules. Anyone have any rules like that in your house for your protection? Yeah. So we have all these kind of rules. Are you supposed to just go up to a light socket and try to put your finger in? Is that wise? No, no, that isn't wise. Why would you do that? Well, your finger wouldn't fit. But should you get a paper clip and try it? No! <laughs> because you're going to get shocked. So there's these things you learn that you don't want to do. You want to respect those things because they are dangerous. They could do you harm. Well, the passage of Scripture we're looking at today talks about how important God's Word is. That God's Word, obedience to God's Word, love of God's Word, is life. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, He makes a way for His people, and the Word of God, trusting and believing in the Gospel, God's Word is life. And what we have in our passage is all these people who claim to be followers of God, but they ignored God's word. They said, I want to do things my way. And what do you think God's response is to that? Do you think that's very dangerous? Yeah, that's actually the most dangerous thing you could do is to say, God, you said to do it this way, but I want to do it my way. It only leads to harm. So in this passage, we're listening to it. I want you to listen carefully because there's this word that keeps being repeated. Those who are humble and tremble at my word. Who respect the word of God and know that it is life for those who have been made alive to believe in it. So I want you to listen carefully for that theme as we go through the message. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that your word shows us who you are and what it is to live for you. Father, we pray that you would help us to tremble at your word, to love your word, and to obey it by your grace and mercy. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You guys can head back to your seats. We're still in this section of Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 63 and 64 was this prayer. It was the prayer of presumption. And what this prayer was, was for those who were in the external covenant, those who were physical descendants of Abraham, they prayed that, oh God, because we are descendants of Abraham, because we are your people, save us. We are all your children. Have mercy and grace on us. And starting with Isaiah 65, God's response was no. He literally says no. He says, no, you are not all my people. You are not all my offspring. 
And there we saw that concept, the development of the remnant, of the elect, set apart from those who were merely presuming in their self-righteousness rather than those who were truly repentant and truly the saved children of God. We saw that distinction throughout Isaiah 65. So as we come into Isaiah 66, we have this powerful, powerful explanation. And the explanation of this, God is high and above. God is all sovereign and all powerful. God does what he pleases. And everything God does, according to what is pleasing to him, is just, is love, is righteous, and is true because he does it. God is not held to any standard presumption of creatures. He is sovereign. And he does what he pleases. And that, to know that, to humble oneself, to acknowledge that and believe in that, is where we see salvation is found in Jesus Christ. So that's where we are in Isaiah 66. So again, Isaiah 66, if we want to go back here to verse 1. Isaiah 66, starting at verse 1. Thus says the Lord... Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So here we see where God is, as he did in Isaiah 65, where he fights against the presumption and self-righteous pride of those who claim to be his people. Here again, he is fighting against that. He's declaring truth against those falsehoods and deceptions, and he's making clear who he is and what the temple is. One of the great deceptions of the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and one of the key reasons why Babylon, God brings Babylon to bring about their destruction and judgment, is because they had false hopes and false comforts. One such false hope and one such false comfort is found in Jeremiah 7. So if you turn to Jeremiah 7, you'll see where the prophet Jeremiah is doing what Isaiah here is doing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking against these presumptions and these false hopes and false comforts of unregenerate, unsaved people claiming to be the people of God. Jeremiah 7, verse 4. The prophet Jeremiah says to these same people of Judea and Jerusalem, do not trust in these deceptive words. So what was the deceptive words the people were putting their trust and hope in? Rather than repenting, rather than confessing their sin, rather than turning away from evil, they put their hope and comfort in these deceptive words. Again, 
Verse 4, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. What the false prophets and false teachers are saying was, don't listen to Jeremiah. Don't listen to what Isaiah said. Don't listen to these prophets that speak about God's holiness and judgment, that he'd render judgment against his people. We've got the temple. He won't bring destruction against us. Babylon won't come against us. We've got the temple. We're physical descendants of Abraham. We need not fear God's judgment or wrath. That's what the false prophets and false teachers are saying. Again, Jeremiah 7, verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. And this is how deceived the people were. Jeremiah 7, verse 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, he's talking about the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations. Wow. See, that's what we've seen being spoken of and warned out throughout Isaiah. It's this prideful, presumptuous, self-righteous, unrepentant people who think that they can live like the devil Monday through Saturday. And as long as they come and offer their offerings and go through the rituals of the temple, they're delivered. That's literally what they thought. That was the deception and false understanding of what it was to be a person of God that was so dominant during the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Ezekiel goes further. Ezekiel says it isn't just that they were living godless, God-hating, hating God's word lives from Monday through Saturday, or for them from Monday, from Sunday through Friday and Saturday that they're offering right sacrifices. Ezekiel says seven days a week they were living godless, immoral lives. If you look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel 23, he goes so far to say as even on the very Sabbath day, while they offered their offerings, they were just as wicked as the rest of the week. Ezekiel 23, verse 37. So here's the prophet Ezekiel. Remember Ezekiel, now he's speaking to the people after Babylon has come and brought the destruction, the judgment. Now they're in exile. Now Ezekiel is speaking the same truth that we've seen in Isaiah and that we find in Jeremiah. Now Ezekiel is saying the same thing. Ezekiel 23, verse 37. Speaking of his covenantal people, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. With their idols, they have committed adultery and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. 
So Ezekiel's getting at the most graphic, rebellious, God-hating and God-defying defilement of the people where they are offering up their own children to Molech, child sacrifice, who were supposed to be born for his glory, for his purpose, to be trained in his love. And they're sacrificing them to a demonically inspired false god and false idol. Ezekiel 23, 38. Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbath. For when they had slaughtered their children and sacrificed to their idols, on the same day they come into my sanctuary to profane it. And behold, this is what they did in my house. So even on the Sabbath, there were those who still had the blood stains of the sacrifice of their children on their hands, and they came to the temple, offered sacrifice, and lifted up those hands with the blood crying out of their idolatry and immorality. That's how bad things were. That's why God is bringing his judgment against these people. So that's why God begins here in Isaiah 66, verse 1, this reminder concerning who he is and concerning the temple. Don't believe in those deceptive words, the temple, the temple, the temple. Why? Because Isaiah 66, verse 1, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. What the people had forgotten was the prayer of Solomon. Remember, it was Solomon who built the temple. They forgot the prayer of Solomon. So if you turn in your scripture to 1 Kings 8, we can see where Solomon, in his wisdom, this is Solomon's high, wise glorious moment of understanding and true worship before God. This is Solomon at his best by God's grace and mercy. The last moments of Solomon's life is at his worst. When he's leaning on one of his foreign wives and burning incense to her idol, her false god. That's that's Solomon at his worst. But this is Solomon at his best by God's grace and mercy. It's 1 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 27. What Isaiah 66 is reminding the people, they forgot this prayer. They forgot this truth. This had been lost within the hearts and minds of the people. So what God is doing through Isaiah and Isaiah 66 is reminding them of this truth of this prayer of Solomon. So Solomon had the temple built, and then this is his prayer commissioning, opening, beginning the sacrifices at the temple. So this is this great prayer before the temple was to be used for sacrifice. 1 Kings 8, verse 27. You can hear this is the opposite of all presumption, self-righteousness, and pride. This is the opposite of that. So 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. That is wisdom. Because that is acknowledging just because God allowed me to build this house of the Lord, this temple, just because God said he is placing his name there does not mean that I can presume anything in self-righteousness and pride upon God. Because God has no need for King Solomon or for even these people. He has no need of anything. He is the all-sovereign, all-powerful creator. That's how Solomon begins that prayer. And that's how every prayer is to be begun by the people of God. That humble, repentant acknowledgement that you, O Lord, you, O God, are high and lifted up. And I am dependent on you for everything that is good. I have nothing in and of myself. That's how Solomon begins his prayer. So verse 28, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. Why? Not because of any righteousness or anything in and of the servant. Solomon is pleading completely on the grace and mercy of of God to hear. He's not presuming anything upon God. And that is what had been lost by the time of Isaiah, completely amongst the people. Verse 28, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. 1 Kings 8, 29, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they prayed toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. What does Solomon understand in his wisdom? God dwells in heaven. God is not confined by the people to the temple. But by the time of Isaiah, they had God so confined in that temple, so small and so restricted to merely the holy of holies, that they could live however they wanted. God won't see. He's, he's merely in the Holy Holies above the cherubim, above the ark. And that's where we have God confined. And as long as we do our incense and sacrifice and, and those rituals on the feast days and on the Sabbath, we can live how we want the rest of the week because we have God confined and narrowed and boxed in to this small space in the Holy of That isn't what Solomon said after he built the temple. Solomon knows that the people are wicked and he knows that they're going to rebel. 
And he knows that God is going to bring judgment and destruction against him. God had revealed to Solomon the whole, the whole story. Verse 46 of 1 Kings 8. I love how Solomon does this. First he gives an if, and then he says, well, forget the if. I like that. So here it is. 1 Kings 8, 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. So that's his way of saying, yeah, it's going to happen. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of their enemy, far off or near. Here he's literally prophesying the coming Babylon destruction and judgment that we're seeing in Isaiah. Verse 47, yet if, and here's the conditional statement, if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying. Again, this, this is the removal of all presumption, all pride and all self-righteousness Literally, Solomon is crying out to God, if they truly humble themselves and repent, then listen to them. Again, verse 47, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captives, saying, here should be their confession, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and all their soul. That's the repentance. That's the repentance that can only take place through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, giving a new heart and a new mind through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verse 48, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions, that he would have compassion on them. So literally after the temple is built, Solomon prays his prayer and he acknowledges that they are going to rebel and turn away from him. And he makes a distinction between those who truly repent with all their heart and all their soul and that God is to listen to those because the ones who truly humble themselves in repentance are truly his people. That's what Solomon prayed. That's what Solomon established. And that's what, by the time of Isaiah 66, there was little to no understanding of that amongst the people of Jerusalem and Judea. That's the lost wisdom of a humble and contrite heart.
And that's what Isaiah speaks of here in Isaiah 66. Again, Isaiah 66, verse 2, after God has reestablished, you can't box me in that holy of holies in that temple. I dwell in the heavens. So verse 2, all these things, now this is everything that has been made, all the heavens and all the earth, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So if mere sacrifice, mere offerings, without a true, humble heart, if that doesn't ensure that God will hear your prayer, look upon you, what will? It's the last part of verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. Oh, that's it. That's it. You want to be one that God listens to, that God looks upon, that God holds in the palm of his righteous right hand. Because that's what God does for his children, his adopted children in Jesus Christ. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is, and this is exactly what Solomon prayed, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at the holy breathed out word of God that acknowledges that God's word is life-giving and that rebellion and hatred and enmity toward God and his word brings death and destruction. This is a common statement throughout the New Testament, not only the Old. Earlier in Isaiah, there was, this statement was spoken of, Isaiah 57, verse 15. This is a beautiful one depicting God again who is high and lifted up, yet he dwells with those of a lowly, contrite spirit. That's what we see again in Isaiah 66. So Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. That's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This, this is God being depicted here. I dwell in the high and holy place. I love how this verse takes God and places him in all his sovereign splendor, all-powerful, all-knowing, high and above. But then the verse brings God in the most intimate, close relationship. With whom? With these people. Again, verse 15, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a self-righteous pride? No. Who looks very religious externally? No. It's with this one. Also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. What is a lowly contrite spirit? Well, the best place to, to, to immerse yourself in what that looks like is Matthew chapter five, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who 
mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted now, who are hated for the name of Christ now. Blessed are the meek. That's the blessed are those who are humble and contrite, that you know you have no works that can contribute anything to your salvation. You have no righteousness of your own. All you have earned is God's eternal conscious torment, is wrath. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's that humble, contrite spirit. That's who is in right relationship with the high, holy God. That's the constant refrain throughout Scripture. So that's why Jesus in Matthew 23, the great passage where he is indicting the scribes, Pharisees, and religious leaders, why does he bring his harshest indictments against them? Because they were doing the same thing that the religious leaders and many of the people during Isaiah's time were doing. They were hypocrites, living self-righteous, presumptuous lives against God without a humble and contrite heart. So it doesn't surprise us that in that passage, Matthew 23, the woe passage, where Jesus woes the religious leaders in their hypocrisy, He says this in verse 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's what Isaiah 66 verses 1 through 6 is is making clear. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is what we looked at in our time of confession and repentance. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And then Peter quotes from Proverbs 3, 34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The loving care of God for his humble and contrite children whom Christ died for and in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, bringing the gifts of true, sincere repentance, humility, and faith. What is the opposite of one who is of humble and contrite heart? What is the opposite of trembling at God's word? And who are those that God does not listen to their prayer and look upon? It is described in verses 3 and 4. What verses 3 and 4 is doing, again, is showing the hypocrisy, the pride and presumption of those who claim the temple, the temple, the temple, without repentant and contrite hearts. They they didn't truly believe. Verse 3. And what this is describing of those who still came to the temple 
and went through the sacrifices and offerings prescribed in the law of God, yet they did it without a believing, contrite, repentant heart. Literally, we looked at Ezekiel. Some had just that very moment before sacrificed their child to Molech. And then they came and offered their sacrifices to the temple. And most of the people through the week had lived in complete idolatry and immorality, but as long as they came and did the offerings on the Sabbath, they're good to go. So Isaiah 66, verse 3. God is making clear that it doesn't matter what sacrifice, what offering, what prayer, if it's not with a true, repentant, believing heart, it, it's an abomination. It's an abomination. Verse 3, he who slaughters an ox. And what's powerful about this is Isaiah goes from the wealthiest all the way down to the poorest. It's every part of society. He's going to talk about slaughtering an ox. So that's for that sacrifice and then a lamb and then a grain offering. So not only is he touching all the different offerings that were prescribed in the law, he's also talking about every person in the society, from the most powerful to the weakest, the richest to the poorest, all the way through. So what this is covering is everyone. Everyone. Verse 3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These, it's these people who go through these external, hypocritical motions, yet not with a true heart. The end of verse 3, these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in these abominations. That's how Isaiah starts. Remember Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, where Isaiah pleads with the people, he cries out, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. God, can, It's a stench to his nostrils. And he turns away. He won't listen to the prayer. He won't look upon those sacrifices. What is God's response? And at the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4, we see a play with the word chose. Chosen. Chosen. So what these people have done is choose to try to serve two masters. They're trying to still claim to be God's people, but their heart is really truly following the idols and immorality of the world around them. So they're trying to serve two masters. So they've chosen to do things in presumption and hypocrisy, not with a contrite and humble heart and attitude. So because they chose that, verse 4, this is what God chooses for them. Verse 4, I also will choose harsh treatment for them 
and bring their fears upon them. And again, this is a play with the word tremble. Those who do not tremble at his word, he will bring the most horrific fear of his judgment and wrath. That's that's what it is. If you tremble at God's word with a true repentant heart and mind, then you know the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. But if you refuse to tremble at his word, he will make you afraid eternally. That's what, that's what this is depicting. Verse 4, I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. They followed their own heart. They identified how they wanted to identify. They lived how they wanted to live. They they had no regard for the word of God. What a dangerous deception that we see take place here. We see this warning throughout Isaiah, throughout the prophets. Salvation is a holy love and fear of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. It isn't just verses three and four. Verses, verse five is what captures how presumptuous and how hypocritical and how rebellious these people became. What is lifted up as the ultimate rebellion and presumption that those who were not of a contrite, repentant heart, those who did not tremble at God's word, those who are not truly God's offspring, according to faith, they killed the ones who were. They persecuted and killed the true children of God. And when they killed them, they said, look, God, we are pleasing you in doing this. That's how twisted, how deceived, and how far that the unregenerate, false people of God were killing the true ones and claiming it was an act of devotion to God. That's what verse 5 is saying. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So this is where Isaiah is turning his attention to the elect, that remnant, those who are truly God's people. And he said, hear this, hear this, because your countrymen are going to torture you and kill you. And in doing it, they think they're doing what's right before God. But they're not. They're not. Remember that. So verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. So literally, while they are persecuting and killing the true prophets, the true remnant, the elect who are standing in God's grace and mercy for what is true and right, they're going to be persecuted, imprisoned, tortured, and killed for the name of God, for the truth. And while that's happening, 
they will be claiming they're doing this for God's joy and glory. But what is God's response at the end of verse 5? But it is they who will be put to shame. And what's the depiction of the shame? Verse 6, the sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. They will meet the sword of Babylon. And the few that are spared will be taken into Babylonian captivity. And those who aren't will be scattered amongst the nations. And it's just a small remnant. Those whom God has kept with a humble and contrite heart. He will hear their prayer and he will restore them. For they are his true people. There are two places in the New Testament that use Isaiah 66. One is Stephen, the first martyr of Acts. If you turn to Acts chapter 7, we see where Stephen is going to quote from Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2, and he's going to quote from Solomon's prayer. See, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's going to weave those two passages together. That's why we looked carefully at those two passages, because Stephen, in the inspiration of the Spirit, weaves them together. So remember the context of Stephen. He's one of the deacons. He's one of the early leaders of the church. And because of his standing firm and proclaiming the gospel, he's going to be stoned to death. As all the true prophets in the Old Testament, we see faced persecution and many of them were martyred. So Stephen is just a continuation in that same reality. So Acts 7 verse 47. But it is Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. So now he's quoting from our text, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? We see where Stephen is giving the same indictment against the scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, who are seeking to kill Stephen and the apostles as they killed Christ. In verse 51, here he interprets our passage and also the prayer of Solomon for them. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 66. That's what Solomon warns in his prayer. What is it to resist the Holy Spirit? What is it to be stiff-necked? It is to not have a humble and contrite heart before God and tremble at his word. It is to be self-righteous, prideful in one's hypocrisy, and presume upon God without any true repentance and true faith. As your fathers did so, 
do you? Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. And literally as Stephen is being stoned to death, God enables him to see Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father interceding on his behalf and on behalf of all the saints. And Stephen's last moments is to say, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. What Jesus said on the cross in his last moments. So that's where Stephen interprets our passage. But first, Jesus interprets our passage. And I want to end with Matthew 10. It's Matthew 10 is where I think Jesus gives his most clear explanation of the truth and reality present within Isaiah 66, 1 through 6. As Isaiah 66, 1 through 6 is giving a warning of God's holy, just wrath and judgment on the unrepentant, presumptuous people. But he's also giving a tender promise to those who tremble at his word who are saved in the Son, Jesus Christ. And we see both as present in Matthew 10. So Matthew 10, verse 16. As Isaiah says in 66, this doesn't just apply to those during the time of Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. This will continue until the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 17, the world will hate you for the name and the gospel and the sake of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but throughout Paul and Peter's writings, we see where they're warned that false teachers and false disciples will raise up in the church and they will hate the truth and hate you for the sake of Christ and this gospel. So Matthew 10, verse 16. Here is how Jesus comforts his children. Matthew 10, 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will raise against parents and have them put to death. For the sake of the gospel, for the truth of Jesus Christ crucified. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end 
will be saved. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, that's how they referred to Jesus, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing that is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we are faced with two options. Option one is to merely presume upon God in hypocrisy, self-righteousness, without a contrite and humble heart. And to fear man, and the fear the thing, to, to fear losing one's earthly life. And in so doing, you will compromise anything of God to retain that earthly life, but, but what happens? You, you do not have eternal life. And just as the things of this earth perish, you will perish with it. In eternal conscious torment in hell are those who are not in Jesus Christ. They will be cast into that eternal judgment. But God has made a way. He has made a way in his son, Jesus Christ, that those who would trust and believe in him, his righteousness, his sacrifice on the cross, that on the cross he paid in full the debts of all the sins of those who would trust and believe in him. That the wrath of God is satisfied on behalf of the elect by Jesus Christ. That there is no longer any condemnation for those who have been given the gifts of repentance and faith. That that is where we find our peace, our hope, our assurance in the love of Christ. To tremble at God's word is to be set free from the rule, to set, be set free from the devil, to be set free of the fear of man, to humble ourselves, to know the love of God and to Work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for it is him at work in his children. That is where freedom and true peace is found. Let us pray. Oh, Father, how amazing is your grace, mercy, and love. Father, again, we are astounded at your grace and mercy that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. 
While we were yet under your just holy wrath, Christ satisfied your wrath so that we could know your love, that we could have forgiveness and eternal life. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to only serve one master, you. Free us from the idols that we continue to cling to. Fix our eyes on the glorious righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. And help us, O Lord, to continue in a humble and contrite heart, standing boldly for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, crucified. In Christ's glorious name, amen. I invite you to please rise and sing with me number 520, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. i
Let us receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I invite you to close with me with the doxology.